on today's podcast. I tell clients, like, kind of envision a, a pyramid, and hormones are sort of at the tip of the pyramid, and everything underneath is what affects that hormone production. And that comes down to stress and blood sugar and inflammation and nutrients and gut health and all of that. So, um, when we look at hormones, it's dependent on the person, but I don't always come right out of the gate wanting to look at that. I kind of want to work from the ground up and like see what we can do and how we can get the body to a place where it can kind of regulate itself. If you're a healthcare provider tired of just treating symptoms and ready to dig deeper into the root causes of health issues, the Vibrant Wellness Podcast is for you. With insider tips, expert interviews, and the latest in biotech research, this podcast will take your patient care to the next level. Welcome back to the Vibrant Wellness Podcast. I hope everyone's having a good morning. I just want to say good morning to my wonderful co-host, Dr. Emmy Brown. Emmy, how are you doing today? I'm well, Jen, and good morning to you. Still looking for the sunshine, as we said before. Yes. <laughs> Glad okay. to be here. Well, we have a lot of sunshine on this podcast today because today we have a registered dietitian, Nicole Fennell from Choose Food Wisely. She brings a wealth of expertise to the table. She challenges the prevailing belief in the diet industry that reducing health to a simplistic calorie equation is the ultimate solution. Instead, she champions the power of personalized nourishment, bidding adieu to the gimmicks, bad diets, and calorie counting apps. She personally experienced the exhaustion, the bloating, and the overwhelming confusion that often accompanies patients on their health journeys. But instead of accepting defeat, Nicole bravely broke free from the confines of the diet mentality and immersed herself in the realm of integrative and functional medicine. So if you find yourselves grappling with the complexities of your patient's health puzzles, Nicole is here to lend her expertise. Help me welcome Nicole to the podcast. Excited to have you, Nicole. Yeah, thank you so much. And that was beautifully articulated. Um, and here in Texas right now, we have plenty of sun to go around. So send it to California, please. <laughs> Bloom has got us all down. Oh, uh, wow. We're welcome. I'm going to take it away to start off with Nicole. And I'd love to know, how did you get started into this journey into functional nutrition? What really drew you into this field? Right. Well, what drew me into more integrative and functional practices is honestly trying to navigate my own journey. So I started as a conventionally trained dietitian working in the hospital settings and skilled nursing facilities and long-term acute care, which was such a powerful tool in my journey to like really understand um, the disease process and understand when people are sort of at the ends of their journey, if you will, especially when I was working in long-term acute care, is seeing high acuity patients for a long period of time and being able to really follow their journey more kind of like, again, the end of their disease process. And while that was super helpful and educational, I kind of felt like I was missing the mark and being more proactive and preventative. I was kind of catching people after the fact they were already sick. And so while it was fulfilling, I was still feeling like there was something that was just missing. And so I started seeing patients before and after work and during my lunch break and just trying to just fill this need that I felt like I wanted to fill to just be more proactive and preventative. And so that was great. But, um, you know, during that time, I was doing everything that I thought was like, quote unquote, right to be healthy. So that meant, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. to go running and training for triathlons and marathons and eating a vegan diet and counting all my calories. And in the midst of doing everything right, I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So 
I remember having some of the ICU nurses like hook me up to telemetry because I was feeling like, gosh, I'm having heart palpitations. I don't know what's going wrong. Um, I was dealing with acne and major skin breakouts. I would go to my office and take a nap in the middle of the day. And, you know, in your mid-20s, you shouldn't be that exhausted all the time. And so I just felt like I was constantly, you know, just like grasping at loose ends. I could never figure out what was going on with me. And then honestly, I think just by fate, I ended up in a doctor's office who was a little bit more functionally minded. And she listened to me. And again, this was just totally by chance. I just picked somebody off of my insurance. And I was like, certainly somebody has to know what's going wrong with me. I was getting migraines every single day. And the solution was giving me steroids or telling me to go on birth control or keep taking my birth control all the way through. So none of that stuff was working. And so that doctor, um, you know, ran a full thyroid panel on me amongst a million other different things and identified that I had Hashimoto's. And I had never even heard of that before. So even though I had been classically trained, I had worked in hospitals, I had no idea what that even meant. And I had been so accustomed to seeing people on thyroid medication and being di diagnosed with hypothyroidism that it's kind of one of those diagnoses that just kind of, you get it a little bit numb to because it's so common. And so I really found out throughout my journey just how important it is to optimize your thyroid status, how important it is to recognize whether or not you have an autoimmune disease, and then also like how much you can actually do to help to manage your symptoms and manage your disease progression. So it was really through my long journey. I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing this kind of quickly, making a long story short, but it was through that that I really discovered building up the body and focusing more on nourishment as opposed to deprivation. So letting go of that calories in, calories out math equation and assessing the body in a more, as a metabolic machine um, and understanding that when the body starts to develop certain things, whether it's autoimmunity and or hypothyroidism or brain fog, those are signals of underlying issues. And so instead of just focusing on, on symptom management, like how can we do that and also support the body from the ground up from a root cause approach? So that was my journey into functional nutrition. And so, um, yeah, I've been in this world for a little over a decade and I feel like I learn something new every day. The body is so amazing and it's really great to just empower people to take control and feel at home in their body again. I love that. And it resonates with me. I, I, in doing some research, getting ready for this, I saw myself a lot in your story. Hashimoto's is, is was not part of my story, but still, um, very similar. So. Thanks for sharing. And I'm curious about the the name of your practice. I love it. Choose Food Wisely. So is that like a metaphor for something or is there a story behind it or is it just something that resonated with you? Um, you know, I, I wish that there was some really um, fun story. I think it was just something that came to my brain when I was in graduate school. And I've always really liked words. I enjoy writing. My mom was an English teacher. I love, you know, plays on words. Um, and so that's, I guess, where Choose Food Wisely came from. But I guess deeper than that, so I guess more metaphorically speaking, just helping people to choose their food wisely for their body, that there's not this one-size-fits-all blanket approach to their management of whatever conditions or symptoms that they have, that um, I really want to equip them to be able to choose it wisely and choose it intuitively. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, on this personal journey, was there ever a time where you had these sort of aha moments? Like, for example, for me, and we could we could have a whole separate podcast on fad diets because I've tried them all, um, that you were just like, this isn't the ticket. Like, it doesn't work. Or is it was it just sort of a gradual progression for you? 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's an organic progression. And I think that anybody who works, you know, one-on-one with patients or clients can probably agree that like everybody's journey is so different. And I have found that the role of a provider is kind of meeting the patient or the client where they are in their journey. And because, you know, whether they're at the start of their journey, in the middle of the journey, at the end of their journey, like in order to make sustainable changes, we have to meet them where they are. I think another really big aha moment, um, nutritionally speaking, again, is focusing on building up the body. So not um, not focusing on like, what are the things that we need to cut out? Or do we need to do fewer calories? But what can we add in? Because physically, that feels really good to add things in. And also emotionally, that feels really good to focus on more abundance as opposed to deprivation. So I think those were some really big aha moments for me. Yes, I love that. Make it's sense. not about subtraction. It's more about addition. And when you switch that mindset, it makes ooh, a lot of difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember being told that I had Hashimoto's. I didn't know what that was. And the doctor kind of schooling me a little bit on nutrition. And it was a little bit embarrassing. So I'm like, I'm a dietitian. I should know all this stuff. And I have zero idea what you're talking about. And um, she encouraged me to go gluten-free. And I remember walking into Whole Foods for the first time and, and just being like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do here. Um and so, yeah, I think that that was super eye-opening for me to just be in the patient's seat um, and be in their shoes and to really develop more and more empathy for their situation because um, it was really overwhelming. So I feel like I had somebody who was championing for, championing me during my process. And so I feel like I am in the position to like kind of pay it forward for these people and also empower them and and educate them about their condition and what they can do about it and give talking points. Like, how do you communicate your needs and communicate your symptoms um, and advocate for yourself, especially if it's something that you're going to have your whole life? Right. And I was listening to you on another podcast, Nicole, and I think you were the one who you were saying you don't know what you don't know. And (laughs) so how do we really coach patients to advocate for themselves if they're not aware that Maybe um, there is a diagnosis for how they're feeling, even if they've been told, no, everything's within normal limits. Um, This looks okay. You know, maybe it's just dehydration or lack of sleep, et cetera, overwork. Um, So I think that's really important to throw out there. And I'm wondering, did this provider for you beyond the management piece, did she order any functional medicine laboratory work that is more integrative in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So she, um, yeah. So one of the first things that she ordered was a full micronutrient panel. And that was really eye-opening for me too. Again, as a dietitian thinking like, oh, I've got this down pat, like things are <laughs> probably fine. And yeah. it was it was pretty bad. My first one, um, you know, and this was, you know, 10 years ago, keeping in mind at the time I was working for the first time in a hospital amongst doctors, you know, I'm, you know, this newbie who is overly stressed, I was planning a wedding. I was training for a marathon. I was vegan. So there were a lot of physical and emotional stressors on my body. So I think that was a big eye-opener too to see, wow, I may be supplying food to my body, maybe not well or definitely not well, but there's so much demand too. And so that further kind of perpetuated this idea of like, you know, calories in, calories out is clearly not working, but also like, look how much impact stress is having on my body. So yes, to answer your question, the first thing that she did was a micronutrient test. And that was kind of my entry into specialty lab testing and honestly something I still use today with pretty much every single client that I work with. Yeah. And I'm wondering, so what do you like to run initially and what do you like to use for monitoring also? I mean, in terms of maybe micronutrient, are you doing that? 
annually, or of course it depends on the client, but um, just kind of wondering what it, what does it look like up front for say someone who's coming in with hypothyroid type complaints? Let's just kind of go off of that example. So fatigue, depression, maybe constipation, um, very low energy, obviously. So what are you running up front and then what are you running kind of on a repeat basis? Yeah. When I love that you said hypothyroid type symptoms, because I would say a lot of the people I work with initially maybe like haven't achieved or haven't received a diagnosis yet, but they suspect. And one of the big things that I encourage people to do is really harness their intuition. You know, if you're having these symptoms, nobody wakes up one day and decides they want to feel poorly. Like it's happening for a reason. So really listen to that and to not give up on yourself. And sometimes it can take more digging to figure out why you're having these symptoms, but there's usually a reason. So if somebody had come to me with zero labs done in the past, um, some of the screens that I like to do and recognizing I'm not a doctor, so I can't diagnose, but I can give access to these labs. And if things are off, then, you know, providing the results and they take it to their doctor for proper diagnosis. But some of my favorite screening um, tools would be, you know, doing a full thyroid panel. So looking at the hormone production, the antibody levels, the TSH and, you know, everything that comes in a full thyroid panel. I love looking at micronutrient status. Um, So I use the vibrant um, intra and extracellular micronutrient status. I love adding on the red blood cell potassium um, because I feel like potassium is one of those that sometimes gets forgotten to look at. Um, And especially if you're ordering just a comprehensive metabolic panel, which is looking at serum, that's not super reflective of true status. And so looking at something like red blood cell potassium is is, um, definitely way more helpful. And in order to get the nutrients in the cell, you have to have proper mineral status. And so being able to properly assess those is really critical. So I love looking at a full thyroid panel, a micronutrient panel, um, an iron panel, um, blood sugar. So blood sugar, A1C, insulin, the fasting insulin for me is really valuable. So those would be the biggest things. And then, of course, a complete blood count and comprehensive metabolic panel are really helpful. So I would say that would be like my initial nutritional screen. And then from there, depending on what they have going on, like, do we need to dig deeper into gut health um, or hormones? And my stance on that, um, I I tell clients, like, kind of envision a a pyramid and hormones are sort of at the tip of the pyramid and everything underneath is what affects that hormone production. And that comes down to stress and blood sugar and inflammation and nutrients and gut health and all of that. So um, when we look at hormones, it's dependent on the person, but I don't always come right out of the gate wanting to look at that. I kind of want to work from the ground up and like see what we can do and how we can get the body to a place where it can kind of regulate itself so we don't have to meddle too much. Understandable. And I love that visual you gave of the pyramid with the hormones on the tippy top <laughs> and all the things below influencing that because I think that... um so many functional medicine practitioners, they feel like they need to order all hormones right out the gate, you know, because it can be so foundational. But if it's impacted by these other things, mm-hmm. you know, let's take it one step at a time. I'm very much, you know, let's follow the process, take it one step at a time. Otherwise, you have so much data at once. You don't know where to begin um, in right. some cases. So I think and it really is. It, it does really, in my experience, vary by the person. So some people, yeah. it's really validating to have that information right out of the gate to just know why they're experiencing symptoms. And then like that can be really motivating for them to stick to the changes that we're implementing. But other people are different. Some people are OK, you know, taking my word for it or 
um, working on those foundational things and then doing hormone testing later. So I, I personally don't think there's a right or a wrong way. I think it just depends on what's going to serve the patient the best and help keep them motivated through the process because nutritional therapy isn't something that like changes overnight. It takes time. And so sometimes like maintaining consistency and patience with the process can be really, really challenging. And that lab data can sometimes be that missing key that they need to just stay par for the course. Yeah, we've talked about that before. It's like when you have the data, you know, the facts don't lie. And so sometimes that really just can be encouraging, but also overwhelming. But, you know, at least you know what you're working with and what you're working toward. But speaking of your methodologies, Nicole, walk us through the brain method, which I, I find really interesting. I saw that on your website as well. So it's it's the brain method for beating brain fog, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a boot camp. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I think it's a symptom that most people suffer with nowadays. I, you know, brain fog is is a common thing. So I'm assuming this sort of came about of working through your own journey, but tell us how your boot camp is helping others now. Walk us through sort of that process. Right. So the brain method um, is the method that I've coined. And I work on that with my one-on-one clients. And it's a similar process that I work on with my group participant. And it just gives people an understanding of what we're trying to achieve in our work together. So in working with people for a little over 10 years now, I've realized like some fundamentals that really have to be mastered in order for your body to be firing on all cylinders. Now, it's not an exhaustive list, but these would be like the big cornerstones of nutritional therapy, especially. So um, BRAIN is an acronym and the B stands for blood sugar balance with nutritional therapy. That's sort of the cornerstone. That's like step number one is how do you maintain good blood sugar stability, which is important for anybody and everybody, regardless of whether or not they have diabetes or PCOS. Blood sugar stability is a critical step that really infiltrates every area of your body if it's out of whack. So that's one of the first things that we focus on. Again, meeting everybody where they are in their journey, but just generally speaking, starting with blood sugar balance. Um, The R is regulating inflammation. So again, focusing on what are some things that we can add into the diet to help to modulate the um, inflammatory response and the immune system response. So kind of focusing on crowding out the more anti-inflammatory food by adding in more, crowding out the inflammatory foods, excuse me, by adding in more anti-inflammatory foods. Um, A is adrenal resiliency. So really bringing in the importance of recognizing stress on the body, physical stress and emotional stress. And so we talk a lot about mindset work and mindset shifts and being present during meals being able to delegate tasks and things like that. And I is intestinal health and just because gut health is so critical for nutrient absorption and immune system status and just a whole host of things. And then N is nutrient repletion. And so discussing the importance of different micronutrients, why you may have nutritional deficiencies and exploring that and exploring different therapeutic foods and the nutrients that they offer. And like I said, I do a lot of nutrient testing and and so that, you know, covers the nutrient aspect. So that would be the brain method. And um, the specifics look different for each person, but that's kind of the gist of what I cover when it comes to working either one-on-one or in my group courses with, with clients. Great. And is that like a set time or it's just dependent upon each client that you work with? Right. Um, it is dependent on each client, but I would say generally speaking, when I'm meeting with a brand new client, Keeping in mind, like I've worked with some clients for 10 years at this point, and the goal over time is for them to need me less and less and less and kind of fade off into the background. And I just come in as needed if they need updated labs or they have a change in health status or a new diagnosis or a change in medication. You know, what do they need to tweak with their nutrition? 
But for brand new clients, <clears throat> I usually meet with them for three to four months initially to really get this education under their belt and to really set them up for long-term success. Um, after that three months, some people, you know, leave the nest and they're good on their own and they just check in if they need to redo labs. For example, with the micronutrient test, depending on the severity of the deficiency, I usually like to see it six months. If they don't have tons of deficiencies, maybe push it out to 12 months. Also, if they have a change in status. So let's say that they get pregnant and have a baby and breastfeed, you know, we may want to do the micronutrient test sooner than we had anticipated or they're planning a pregnancy or they're training for a marathon. Again, it's going to vary depending on what they have going on. And I would say generally speaking, it's three months when I'm working one-on-one with somebody. And then if they need to add more time, it's kind of a case-by-case basis. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. And so, and Nicole, I want to, before we move on from the brain method for blood sugar, what do you think about continuous glucose monitoring? Do you use it? Is it helpful? I, I think um, there are pros and cons. I can certainly see where having that data can be really helpful. I think for my specific um, clientele base, a lot, I work with primarily women, but not exclusively women, but I would say that primarily the population that I'm serving has some strained relationship with food in some capacity. And so sometimes the continuous monitoring can kind of be a double-edged sword of giving just too much feedback and um, kind of disconnect them a little bit from being a more intuitive eater. So I believe to be an intuitive eater, you have to understand nutrition and you have to understand the science of it. But you also have to trust yourself at the same time. So while the data can be helpful, it's not something that I would use across the board with every um, patient. Um, so that would be kind of a case by case, um, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I love that you say... It depends on the personality, depends on their medical history, um, and that's what it is. It's a tool. So, yeah. and I love the data. I think that it can be really motivating, um, but we also don't want to trigger, you know, certain types of people with all of that data. And and I, and the intuitive eating that's also really, really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a whole another topic. I would love to dive into that at some point. Um, but really, and that's more sustainable, right? I mean, because you can't have a continuous glucose monitor forever, you know? I mean, I guess, right. So there's different cases. If you have diabetes, that's something you might rely on, um, if that works for you, but it's not as sustainable if you're someone who's just trying to track for whatever other purpose. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's really, really helpful to share with listeners here and, as we talk about the brain method, I'm curious to put together the pieces a bit more. I'd love to hear about, is there a case that comes to mind that maybe really stuck sticks out um, in terms of success for you? For sure. Yeah. One of the cases that stands out to me um, is a young woman who came to me just feeling really defeated, doing all the things, quote unquote, all the things, you know, waking up and going to a hit class and tracking her macros and I'll kind of caveat there the the macros being prescribed but not adequate for her needs Mm. high stress working in a law firm just feeling really down and overwhelmed um and so there you know initially was doing some unlearning of what she had begun to believe to be a healthy diet and lifestyle which is exercising like crazy and eating less and less and less food. And 
sacrificing her mental health for the sake of fitting into a pant size. So acknowledging that like, you know, yes, it's important to feel comfortable in your body, but the means in which you go about doing so are really important and your mental health matters um, as well. So we spent several weeks kind of undoing some knowledge and refill it or filling up some knowledge gaps and really teaching the power of nutrition. Because like I said earlier, I believe that we're all gifted intuition, but sometimes understanding nutrition and connecting the dots between how certain foods and certain amounts of foods make you feel, those are some stepping stones to become a more intuitive eater. So like the glucose monitor can be a really helpful tool for some people to achieve that level of um, being an intuitive eater. But anyway, so from there, we did just some initial testing, um, you know, in addition to a lot of the nutritional education. And so, you know, we looked at a full thyroid panel, we looked at um, micronutrients, we looked at blood sugar. And it was the first time that she's had a really comprehensive screen done. And in that initial um, set of labs, identified an elevation in um, TPO antibodies, um, a degree of insulin resistance with some higher levels of fasting insulin and then lots of micronutrient deficiencies. And so from there, you know, she started working with an endocrinologist for proper diagnosis and getting thyroid ultrasounds and doing that whole workup. Um, but really from there, we were able to implement dietary changes, um, which I'm simplifying this a lot, coming down to balanced meals, the proper meal timing for her body, with her body and mind being under so much stress at that time, changing the types of exercises that she was doing, prioritizing sleep and rest recovery. Um, and then creating a supplement protocol based off of her micronutrient status. And so it it took time. Um, so we worked together at that point in time about like four to six months. But during that time, she was able to notice, you know, first and foremost, just improvements in brain fog and cognition and energy, um, more stress resiliency. So instead of being like reactive to situations, much more responsive to situations. Over time, her weight did improve um, and she was eating more food, which she was just completely you know, <laughs> floored by, which is, yeah, which is the case for a lot of people that eating more food is actually sending the message of safety to their body. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've kept in touch over the years. And so she's continued to make tremendous progress in her health. But I think what's also um, physical health and mental health, but I think what's also amazing is keeping in touch with her and realizing how much improvement she's had on her mental health in setting boundaries, you know, leaving jobs that weren't serving her, um, leaving a marriage. And I know this is kind of extreme, but I think it's really neat. Um, and how she worded it is that she was feeling so miserable for so long physically that she just never felt like she could achieve happiness in any aspect of her life. But when she started to physically feel well, she realized that she deserved more. And she was um, at the point where she could set boundaries and make changes like that. So Amazing. She's kind of my superstar. Um, I'm not telling people to leave their jobs, but I just think it's amazing to see like where you when you can regain your health, it can have such widespread effects into your entire life. Just an amazing domino effect. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Life changing. And sometimes, well, she came to the realization on her own that she needed to leave yes. that job. So it wasn't you. <laughs> no, no. It was you in the in the best way leading her to that. Mm -hmm. such yeah, a I love that. I love what you said. I don't think I've ever heard it worded quite like that. But when you actually are giving your body more of the good food that it needs, that it feels safe enough to actually function the way it's supposed to. Beautifully put. Speaking about food and intake, let's talk about diet culture. I know that's probably a huge part of the population that you deal with. I feel like 
gosh, we could trace it back to the late 80s, early 90s when that damn low-fat diet hit the scene. Um, You know, I feel like since then we have not been able to escape fad after fad. And I know we're all looking for the quick sticks. That's just sort of the mentality of our species right now. Um, And I've shared with you, you know, I personally have have a good decade and a half of my life was fad diet after fad diet, and I was so much worse off for it. So I'm curious, you find that many of the women that you work with, are they still stuck in sort of that vicious cycle of those fad diets? And if so, what's the process you take them through to sort of debunk that mentality of the fad diet? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it's kind of split. So there are certainly um, the patients who come in who are in the throes of diet culture. And it's really hard to get out of that when you're being bombarded with so much information that's validating that thought process. Um, And then there's a group who, um, whether they followed me on social media or just other dietitians or practitioners who are more functionally minded, they may be a little further along in their journey of letting go of the fad diet culture. But Um, My approach is just tons of education and teaching why this isn't working for your body and connecting like um, symptoms and when they started in conjunction with what they were doing with their diet and or exercise and or stress. And so sometimes when people can see that linear connection, it kind of triggers a light bulb moment of, wow, yeah, this isn't working. And then teaching how the body functions and the intricacies of it and helping people to appreciate how powerful and beautiful our bodies are. Um, I really think that's a big component that's missing is people just understanding that our bodies are very capable of a lot of things. Um, Maybe not complete healing, but on the track to healing and your body is on your side and it wants to feel good. And so approaching things like symptoms more with curiosity as opposed to resentment and allowing people to have better communication with their body. And so oftentimes as a provider, we're sort of a um, liaison between the body's symptoms and the person and allowing more established communication and helping people understand what their symptoms actually mean. So um, in summary, a lot of education, I just like for people to understand their body and feel more attuned to their body. So they start to connect the dots, understand. And you said approaching with curiosity rather than resentment regarding Mm -hmm. symptoms. That's very powerful because we can learn so much from our symptoms and the health challenges we go through. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. And I don't want to demonize one fad or another, but is there a diet trend or a fad diet right now that... um, you are are really feeling negatively about or is there something right now you're really excited about is there um you know intuitive eating of course has been around for a long time it makes sense it's sustainable we talked about the benefits of that is there something else that you're excited about or not so excited about right now (laughs) yeah so i would say any extreme in diet is something that i'm not super stoked about so whether it's veganism or a ketosis diet you know i believe and it's not just a belief it's it's biology that humans are omnivorous and there are certain nutrients that we just require for thriving and for optimal performance and sure we can survive without certain things but I mean I prefer to thrive and so yeah I would say any sort of extreme is something that I would you know be more resistant to and then things that I'm excited about 
um, golly, I don't know that there's like a specific diet out there that I'm super excited about. I think the idea of pro-metabolic eating is honestly something that most functionally minded dietitians teach to begin with, but now it has a label on it. So I think that I think that that diet is really interesting. And I think it's it's cool that it's gaining traction because it's it's allowing people to realize how important it is to nourish and build up your body. Um, so I would say like that one's the one that's piquing my interest the most. Um, but I, I definitely wouldn't label. Called? What's that? What was it called again? Um, it's called pro-metabolic. Um, pro-metabolic. So I don't want to be the person like that championing that. I just think that if there was yeah. one to choose from, I would th- say that that's probably in more alignment with what most functional dietitians would be teaching. What's the general idea of that one? I th- that's totally new to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I could be butchering this. Um, I think as a dietitian, we're surprisingly not super keen or up to speed on the intricacies of every fad diet because we don't teach those. So I could be missing the mark on this. But what I understand of it is that it's incorporating foods that allow for better energy production, which is going to sound really basic, but um, getting adequate protein and getting good quality complex carbohydrates and just focusing a lot on nutrient density. Again, which doesn't sound revolutionary, um, but I think because it's been coined a certain term, it's it's it, it's becoming more enticing to people. It's a um, buzzword kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pro metabolic. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I, I'm always talking about nutrient density. Yeah, because um, we see people, patients, clients, whomever. They say, "Is this good for me? Is this bad for me?" And I say, "For what?" What's the implication? What are your health goals? Um, it, and what is the nutrient density of that food? I mean, that's really what I'm focusing on. And it makes sense. I mean, everybody wants to have more energy, right? We mm-hmm. eat to fuel our body. So pro-metabolic, that's good to, I'm going to make a mental note of that. Um, but like you said, it's really nothing new <laughs> for people who have been doing nutrition for a long time. So, um, okay. And I want to segue now into more specifics in terms of nutrition and Hashimoto's because I know that you do a lot of work with Hashimoto's um, and so I'd love to dig into some clinical pearls that might be overlooked in conventional practice. Oftentimes they are unfortunately Um, and so even though Hashimoto's is the most common form of hypothyroidism, many practitioners don't recognize or address the autoimmune nature of it. And I know that you like to speak on this and I'm, I'm grateful that you do because it is something that, well, it doesn't change the management, right? You give levothyroxine in a, in a typical medical practice, even in integrative clinics that I'm familiar with. And that's the management. And you might do some nutritional things surrounding this to support the patient. Um, but that autoimmune nature, it's just, well, it's, maybe antibodies aren't even run because it's just assumed that it's Hashimoto's. So I'm wondering, what do you like to do, Nicole, to support patients beyond thyroid replacement? Um, Are there, I mean, of course, eating a (laughs) nutritionally dense diet is going to be where you start. But are there specifics? Are you adding in a little bit of kelp here and there? Are you, um, you know, what are you really doing to support the thyroid? You mentioned going gluten-free. That's a really major fundamental piece when somebody is first diagnosed with Hashimoto's in my book. Um, but what else are you thinking? Yeah, for sure. So I think, um, again, I always start with education. So teaching people what's going on when they have Hashimoto's versus hypothyroidism unrelated to Hashimoto's. 
and that it's an immune system issue first that's affecting the thyroid. And so focusing um, first and foremost on identifying what are some of the stressors on the immune system and, and maybe like when did this start? So when I'm meeting with new clients, I always like to build a comprehensive timeline of their health history. Not that we can go back and change time, but just to allow them a little bit of understanding of like what could have snowballed to this um, situation where um, Hashimoto's is beginning to express itself. And so, you know, everybody is at a different place in their journey. And let's say somebody is initially diagnosed with Hashimoto's and has no idea. Well, first and foremost, like I said, educating on what it is um, and the fact that it is something that they'll have the rest of their life. It can be very well managed, but because it's something they'll have their entire life, they need to make sure that the diet that they're eating is, is a diet that they can follow the rest of their lives. Um, in terms of food elimination, um, of course, gluten-free is a really big recommendation. And then I try to work individually on people to identify either based off of symptoms or testing, like, are there some other foods that may be just overstimulating the immune system, right? Now, with Hashimoto's, you know, since it's autoimmune, it's part genetic, part stressors on the body, and then part gut health integrity. So we do talk a lot about gut health and liver health and what's going on in there. Again, getting a lot of background into their gut health status and then maybe incorporating some functional testing to just kind of see what's going on with, you know, bacteria and digestive capacity and parasites and things like that. Um, and then in terms of supplementation, you know, it is highly individual. Um, and through listening to symptoms, looking at lab testing and kind of putting this whole mosaic together, uh, we can start to pinpoint where in the journey of thyroid hormone creation or absorption, are there some kinks in the system? So is it more of a triggering issue? So is like the brain thyroid communication not great? Is that related to stress or what else is going on? Is the overall production of thyroid hormone not great? And is that coming down to nutritional deficiency or just damage from the autoimmune disease itself? Is it an absorption issue? So is the cell um, like not taking in the thyroid hormone, which can very often come down to mineral status? Is there maybe a conversion issue, which ha happens um, oftentimes if there are nutritional deficiencies, gut health issues, burden on the liver? So there are a lot of kind of like points in the thyroid journey that can have some kinks in the process. And so I try to work with each person to see how we can optimize um, each step. And then in terms of like the, the like kelp flakes and iodine and stuff, that's honestly like where it can differ from regular, I think regular hypothyroidism, I guess hypothyroidism unrelated to Hashimoto's. And that since it's that TPO enzyme that's mostly affected, um, the speed at which people with Hashimoto's are capable of utilizing iodine is going to be less. And what can happen is that there's almost this like, um, like an overburden on that process. And there can kind of just like be a backup of hydrogen peroxide that can actually lead to more inflammation. And so something like kelp flakes and iodine with people with Hashimoto's is something that you just have to introduce delicately. Not everybody needs to have more iodine. It's not necessarily an iodine issue um, more so than it is an immune system issue for people with Hashimoto's. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of complexity with the iodine conversation. Yes. So that could be a whole other podcast. Going into yeah. the intricacies and the science behind that. But yes, really great point. You need to individualize. Um, and it really, it just depends on one particular case. It might differ. And focusing on, we're always going into the root. I feel that on this show, we're always getting deeper and deeper into root cause, going upstream. Um, and so I love you said it's really more so about the immune system. And, you know, 
in this country, they're probably getting enough of salt, enough salt that has iodine in it, but are they using it adequately? Right. Right. Are they using it adequately? That's the gut health um, component and then just the immune system component. So that's so important. I like to mention too, you know, looking at vitamin D, that's so, mm-hmm. I mean, it's so simple, <laughs> but I think it gets overlooked just in terms of what is their vitamin D status, but you'll get that with all the micronutrient testing, of course. So um, what about other, what about food sensitivity testing? I mean, beyond gluten, are you looking for, I mean, and again, going upstream, really maybe it's more of an issue of digestive insufficiency, but are you ever curious about other food sensitivities too? And and do they change over time, you feel? Yeah, yeah. Those are really good questions. Yeah. So I would say um, we will observe the common offenders, so gluten being the biggest one, because there's also just a really big crossover between Hashimoto's and celiac disease, and they share a lot of those genetic um, predisposing factors. But um, some other common ones are things like soy, corn, dairy. Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm missing one. Of course, it'll come to me after we're done recording. But those are the, the, the oftentimes the biggest ones to look at. Um, and so we kind of can go based off of symptoms for those. Sometimes I do recruit the help of food sensitivity testing to help to identify that, um, especially if there are just a lot of reactions happening. And it's, you know, sometimes it can be hard to pinpoint things like that. Right. Um, but, you know, food sensitivities create symptoms, but they are a symptom oftentimes of underlying dysfunction um, inside the gut. So I don't always come right out of the gate doing food sensitivity testing unless somebody is having major reactions pretty frequently. Um, and that could be gut reactions, skin reactions, swelling, lots of brain fog. But I do like to see what's going on inside the gut, um, especially because people with Hashimoto's very often have some degree of, of gut imbalance. Um, so whether they have good enough good bacteria? Do they have too much bad bacteria? What is what's going on there? And then also how well are they digesting their food? Because, you know, the thyroid is the only hormone that can impact or does impact every cell in the body. And it has a huge impact on digestion from the top down. So the creation of bile, the flow of bile, hydrochloric acid, um, peristalsis in the intestinal tract. So it's sort of this chicken or an egg situation where did the gut dysfunction create thyroid dysfunction and autoimmunity or did the opposite happen where like the low thyroid status kind of slowed things down a little bit and made it more favorable for there to be bacterial overgrowth or parasitic infiltration. So again, it is pretty individualized, but I think it's interesting to just, you know, come at it from um, different angles and get really analytical as a provider to see like potentially what came first and how, how can we address that so that there are better outcomes downstream. Right. Get curious, like you said. Yeah. But with the food sensitivities, can they change over time? Absolutely. So a lot of food sensitivity testing is going to look at just different immune system reactions inside the body. And the immune cells have different memory lengths. So sometimes the memory is short and sometimes it's long. Sometimes overexposures to food can lead to food sensitivities. Sometimes we have food sensitivities for just unknown reasons. But it can be helpful to just objectively quantify what foods are reactive and are they maybe there from overexposure um, is it there because of maldigestion? Um, and then oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes doing some gut healing, adding in more variety with foods, enhancing the digestion, um, that can decrease the intensity and severity and sometimes even the presence of food sensitivities. Yeah, that yeah great sense. point. So I, I'd love to know in all this education you've done over the last decade plus, tell us 
what is the day-to-day life of Nicole now versus the Nicole before? Like what practical changes have you made that have made a difference and that you've been able to sustain as a lifestyle? Um, personally or professionally? I'd I, like personally. I really like to know. Okay. Like, I, I feel like that gives other wellness providers and professionals, you know, kind of a peek behind the curtain and and maybe they can take away a few tips of your own. Yeah. Well, I mean, gosh, that's been something that I've worked on for years and years. I'm somebody who, by nature, I like to dive in and just know everything about everything and do everything all at once, but that's never helped me ever. (laughs) And so I think just practicing a lot of restraint and um, consistency with just doing small things every day that over time snowball into good habits. And so for me, it's just making time every single day, non-negotiable, just for like a mental health break, whether that's going for a walk, whether it's reading something that just spiritually fills me up, that is a non-negotiable. Um, I try very hard to keep my calendar pretty structured and set boundaries around when I'm seeing my patients and communicating um, because I'm sure most people can relate. I'm not very good at multitasking, even though I like to, and it seems more productive. It's actually not very productive. So trying to time block as best as I can, realizing that's not going to be perfect. Um, So I would say that working on my mental health and boundaries has been a really, really, really crucial, surprising aspect of um, managing my Hashimoto's. Um, Next would be, I mean, I've been gluten-free for what seems like forever and before it was cool, but that was really helpful, um, especially for brain fog. So I was somebody who didn't really get digestive symptoms from from, um, gluten, but my brain definitely had um, some symptoms. And so it's not fun to be gluten-free, but it is way more fun to be present and articulate and be able to have a conversation with people. So that was a big step. Um, And I would say lastly is really protecting my bedtime routine. it's especially as a mom, having that kind of like revenge bedtime procrastination is very real and it's easy to just stay up, you know, watching my trashing TV. But <laughs> being able to like go to bed on time and like have a routine um, night and morning has been really helpful for my energy and productivity. So those would be like the biggest thing. Yeah. Those are those are huge. They're small, like you said, but they add up. It's yeah. One of my uh, favorite quotes is small steps, repeated consistency consistently equals massive change. And it's true. It's got to keep showing up. Um, well, I'm going to ask you to, to keep it real with me now because I'm going to, I'm going to be transparent with you. I okay. have found it extremely challenging as my kids are getting older. I've got teens now. Uh, my youngest is going to be seven, but I, I find it really difficult to cook as cleanly as I used to because there's so much more active at this age. We are running all the time. Is there Anything that you still kind of struggle with, even knowing what you know, just as a mom, as a, you know, a parent. Yeah. So, you know, it's so funny. Somebody asked me the other day, like, what is one thing that you said you would never do as a parent before you had kids? And I was like, everything like, you know, in <laughs> um, in reality, it's just it's hard being a, a parent and a working parent. So I think the first thing is just giving myself some compassion and, you know, realizing that my children's diet doesn't have to be perfect. It can be pretty darn good, but there are just going to be times where they're getting a meal and that's the best that I can do in this moment in time. You know, it's better than nothing. Um, But I do try to really harness like anchor meals. So meals that I know they're going to be home for, that I have a little bit more control over so that it 
at least make me feel a little bit better if they eat differently when they're outside of the house or at school or if they, you know, go to Chick-fil-A with their friends or something. You know, like I try not to sweat the small stuff. So our anchor meals for our kids are breakfast and dinner because sometimes lunch can just be a little bit of a crapshoot. Um, you know, even though my kids are dietitian kids, like they can be picky. And I have one child who doesn't like meat and another child who doesn't like vegetables. So it can certainly be a bit of a struggle at mealtime. Um, so I just try the best that I can. Um, one thing that my kids really like, they love smoothies and I turn it into popsicles and they think that they're getting a treat. But in reality, they're getting cauliflower and veggies and stuff inside a popsicle. So that's been helpful. Um, but honestly, I think just like um, leading by example and and trying not to tell them what to do, but show them what to do by how I'm eating and my relationship with food and how I approach food and my husband approach food and we try to have family dinners and family meals. Um, but then also make room for the fun stuff, you know, because I think that moderation is, is very important so that they don't have a struggling relationship with food whenever they get older. Yeah. I love that. Really just controlling what you can control and, and giving yourself grace for the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. So much Great balance type. in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what about um, <clears throat> patients who are struggling to make these changes, Nicole? What kinds of tools are in your toolbox? Are you coordinating care with other providers, for example? Are you kind of just letting them go, come back when you're ready? Um, and what's your style? Are you kind of tough love or how do you approach that? You know, I, I sometimes wish that I was a tough love person, but <laughs> I'm not. Um, I am a, I try to be at least very compassionate and understanding and a listening ear. And I believe that everybody has the answer in them. And sometimes it just takes some level of comfort and vulnerability to kind of like get those answers out of them. So I really try to harness a lot of just um, motivational interviewing and mindset work and really trying to get into the deep why behind certain behaviors. And it's not always easy. I mean, I'm explaining it easily, but a lot of people, especially if they've been on an autoimmune journey, it can take seven to 10 years before people get proper diagnosis. I think that they're very used to being dismissed or um, being gaslit or things like that. So I, I can see where people easily build up walls and are a little bit more averse to sharing symptoms and vulnerabilities. But um, I really try to break down those walls with compassion and validation and um, really try to understand the why of their behavior. Um, so it can take some time and everybody is a little bit different. But I feel like when people can start to connect the dots between what they're doing and how that may not be serving them. And then also like, what is the alternative? You know, if they're trying to give up a bad habit, like, well, then what do they do instead? Um, That can be really, really helpful. And then I'm no therapist, definitely not. But it can, I oftentimes find myself in the position of introducing the idea of what people have gone through in childhood and how it impacts their choices as an adult. So um, having that entry or just awareness can sometimes unlock the door to allowing people to get the mental health services that they need. And so I very often work in conjunction with therapists and counselors um, in tandem while I'm working with the patients that I'm working with. Um, And then, like I said um, earlier in the conversation, if there is something medically off that warrants proper diagnosis and more workup, so maybe it's meeting with an endocrinologist or an OB-GYN or a gastroenterologist, um, I consider myself part of the team. And sometimes people need a larger team and sometimes they, people need a smaller team. But um, I definitely think it's it's a, for the patient's benefit to recruit more team members when necessary. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I love how you mentioned a team approach because even though you are doing so much counseling by nature as nutritional professionals, as an naturopathic doctor myself, the mental health component is not my forte. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. So that's so, so important to be able to coordinate care with other professionals you trust and who really are open-minded. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, love that you bring that up. Okay. Um, so we're going to wrap it up in a moment here, but you've got so many wonderful ideas you've thrown out and we've learned so much. Where do you think the future of functional nutrition is headed or where would you like to see it headed? I think it's very much already down this path of continuing to be as specific and personalized as possible. Um, And I think that functional medicine and functional nutrition um, has done a really great job of achieving this through lab testing and objective data. But I'm seeing this really big missing piece in mental health and really personalizing mental health into the equation. So how do we really bridge the subjective and objective um, uniqueness of a person to a really strategic approach for them. So that would be my answer. I feel like um, lab-wise and scientifically we're and biologically, we are very much on the path. Um, but I think mental health and stress awareness and stress management and slowing down, I think like that would be a huge element I would love to see more emphasized and kind of like made cool again or made cool in general. See, yes, let's destigmatize it and and every medical complaint. I think that there is probably at least some value in assessing the the mental health component of it. You know, some people say I have no stress. I lead a very <laughs> happy, stress-free life, but they're definitely the minority. Um I do come across that sometimes, but they'll deny stress. Um and I say even good stress is still stress. So, you know, running around, taking care of your kids, if everything's going well at home, still stress on the body. The body still perceives it in that way. So um, slowing down, I think you you mentioned that's that. I Yes, I'm I'm looking forward to that, too. I know the UK, they're testing out four day work week. So just (laughs) throwing that out there. Um, okay. For people who have been stressed out for a long time and they say they have no stress, but they actually do. They're just used to it. So for them, it's stressful to slow down. So I yeah. think just like having that conversation about like, how do you feel when you actually slow down? And if, if you don't feel well, you're probably stressed, way more stressed than you realize. So yeah. And some people, they've lived their whole lives that way. And they're kind of, we were talking about this on another podcast, Nicole, about being addicted to your stress hormones. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a fascinating uh, concept that we see way too often. But um, I'm going to leave it there, plant that little seed. Maybe we can talk about that on a follow-up podcast. I'd I'd love to have you back. I'm sure Jen feels the same way. We look forward to maybe having you back sometime soon. Um, And to our listeners, in the meantime, stay vibrant. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for being here today. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so we can continue to pay it forward together. And remember, the key to longevity is knowledge. Keep learning, growing, and tuning in to the Vibrant Wellness Podcast to discover the latest insights and strategies for optimal health. Join us again next week. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official policy of Vibrant Wellness. As always, consult your healthcare provider before applying any recommendations that you heard here today.